Before we proceed further, I'd like to add a little footnote to our session last week. Let me, uh, last week regarding the sovereignty, my word, last week of Satan on earth. I appreciate Prestina and others who contributed their thoughts to the discussion. And here's where I come down on this. Because some took issue with that word sovereign. Only the Lord God is sovereign. True. On more than one occasion, Jesus referred to Satan as, quote, the ruler of this world. As in John 12, 31, quote, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. End quote. My position is that there's very little difference between ruler, the word is archon, and sovereign. At the same time, however, I agree with Prestina that a better word should have been found. For we all agree that no one nowhere is as sovereign as Father God. And I like how Dennis put it to me in an email. He wrote, God is sovereign over everything, but he has given Satan authority over the earth right now. That's a pretty good way to put it. Satan isn't sovereign, but right now he has authority on earth. Okay. The title of last week's session was Cause and Effect. Regarding the cause of the rapture being the event that makes possible the effect of the tribulation. And we'll see a second cause and effect being played out as we examine the first four seals in the scroll just opened by the Lamb that was slain. The events triggered by the breaking of the first four seals have traditionally been referred to in popular culture as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But we're more interested in what they do than what they're called. What we know from the narrative is that what we know what we know from the narrative is that everything that transpires from the breaking of these seven seals I'll wait. What we know from the narrative is that everything that transpires from the breaking of these seven seals is of God. For the document was written in eternity past by the Godhead. Might as well put it up, Adam, since I'm talking about it. Just a minute. I'll keep talking then. Especially with the first four seals, it's part of what Jesus referred to as merely the beginning of birth pangs. Matthew 24, 8. Which means it is just act one of the final and full flowering of God's wrath upon a humanity, as we know very well, clinging desperately to its sin. <clears throat> now, 
right off the bat, I need to add a note here. During my preliminary sketching out of this study, I followed the traditional and, admittedly, textual perspective of dividing the tribulation into two, three, and one-half year periods, intending to eventually assign every event to one or the other. That's historically what people have done. Further, or either that or to the dramatic midpoint where a lot of things happen. <clears throat> Further study, however, has steered me away from that. The tribulation events recorded in the prophecies are not so neatly assigned to a sequence corresponding to the manner in which they've been recorded. We'll see that clearly in just the first seven events contained in the seals. Indeed, we'll see it today in the fourth seal. But it's not just difficult, but ultimately, in my opinion, inconsequential. To force an event into one half or the other. God's word, and thus God himself, does not so neatly package the events of the tribulation. Taking the prophetic references as a whole, not just Revelation, but Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah, Jeremiah, Joel, who we'll hear from today. The impression one gets is that the Lord God sees all of this as one seamless tapestry. Now to be clear... This is not to say that we cannot put it into some coherent order. I'm not backing away from that. It is to say that it's not written in that order. To the extent that there will be some events or mile markers that cannot ultimately be assigned to one half of the tribulation or the other. There's no getting around it. The tribulation is the centerpiece of the end times. I believe that the Godhead always saw it that way. We'll see it that way. That there's, there are events leading up to the tribulation. There are events that happen after the tribulation. Very dramatic, powerful events. <clears throat> but the end times as a whole are all about God's wrath upon a sinful world. Well, the high point of that is the tribulation. And that's why we're digging into it deeply to understand it. What is demonstrably clear, however, is that from beginning to end, the events of the tribulation comprise a steady crescendo of violence, pain, and suffering for those on earth. So whether something is in the first part, or the second part, or the middle part, or refers to something that happens later or earlier, the tribulation is a steady crescendo of intensity. We may not be able to identify the next two writers. Is it up there? It is, indeed. But we can certainly identify the ones calling out the four writers. 
In chapter 6, we're told that the ones saying as with a voice of thunder, that is, with a sound of an approaching storm, come, as in come forth, are the four living creatures. These creatures were introduced in chapter 4. Let's look at that. Revelation 4, verses 6 to 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, excuse me, holy, holy, too much coffee. Too much coffee. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures, I think I'm done there. You want me to go on? Read, read chapter, verse 8, please. I did. I did. Okay. There, there was a, a line in one of the songs we sang this morning. Uh, girded with praise. What's this? The four living creatures gird the throne of God with praise. Holy, 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 constantly. The word is zoan. It's a neuter term. That is, we don't know if they're boys or girls. Probably neither. It means a live thing, an animal, a beast. King James Version always translates this word beast, zoan. We need not dwell on their appearance, which is rather bizarre to say the least. But remember that John, like all the prophets being favored with vision, struggles to put into earthly words what he's seen in his vision of the throne of heaven. Read Ezekiel. Bizarre. Well, he couldn't find, you know, you got to find something on earth to describe it so that people can understand. And it sometimes doesn't translate very well. These are the creatures, so strange from an earthly perspective, yet so favored as to be the things stationed closest to the holy throne of God. No one in heaven, save for the Son, no one is physically closer to God the Father than these four bizarre creatures. And they're the ones who call forth these horses and their riders on their colored steeds. Now, if you're not there, turn to chapter 6. And if you have it, you may want to refer to chart 9. That's where we're going to be the rest of the time. The first rider that we talked about last week pictured as he is as a victorious warrior on a historically appropriate white steed. That is, he is shown as a conqueror, victorious conqueror. And it's historically, that's, they would be on a, when, when the, the Roman general returned to, to Rome and they had this procession where they drug the slaves behind him and, and had the, the soldiers marching through the streets He was always on a white horse, the white horse of a victor. 
Let me add just a few more thoughts on the position that the first rider upon a white horse is not Christ. Some claim it is. Let me give you a few more reasons why it's not. Isbon T. Beckwith, is that it? Who names their child Isbon, mothers? On this Mother's Day, Isbon. Isbon T. Beckworth writes, The first writer unquestionably symbolizes the victorious warrior. It is hardly conceivable that Christ should be represented here as the Lamb in the court of heaven breaking the seal, and at the same time, by that act, revealing himself as a figure coming into view from another quarter, and in another form in response to a summons from an archangel. And I would add to this that this would mean that Christ continues to break the subsequent seals in the scroll after he's just departed on the white horse. That doesn't track very well. Then Arthur S. Peake writes, Moreover, it brings him on the scene much too early, for it is not till a very late point in the development that he enters on his victorious career. This identification that Christ is the one on the white horse of the first seal should therefore be set aside without hesitation. I concur. Now the next two writers can only be identified by what they do, not by who they are. The second seal, war, Revelation 6, verses 3 to 4. And another... A red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. That phrase struck me the first time I dug into this. It was granted to take peace from the earth. Here's a reverberating echo of the cause and effect that inaugurated the tribulation in the first place, both of which put the lie to the popular notion that all people are basically good. What will be required for the appearance of Antichrist and the start of the tribulation? Only the removal of the church and the Holy Spirit from the earth. What will be required for wars to break out with men slaying one another? Only the removal of peace. So appreciate the sublime truth of that simple statement. To the writer, quote, it was granted to take peace from the earth, end quote. It won't be necessary for him to create war. That's already built into us. We're made that way. He doesn't have to, God doesn't have to do anything to create war on this earth. We're born able to do that. So all he has to do to intensify war on the earth is just remove peace. Peace is gone. Thus early on at the outset of the tribulation, when peace is removed from the earth... From then on, it will be no holds barred. All restraints will have been removed. No Holy Spirit, no church, no Christians, 
no peace. The third seal, famine. Revelation 6, 5 to 6. I looked and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, Now, who's in the center of the four living creatures? God. Right. I don't, need, I don't want to do all the work here. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. Clear as mud. But it's good. This is good. Now we're beginning to see, if you're tracking on this, we're beginning to see the second instance of a cause and effect during the tribulation. First, the first seal introduces to the world the one who's up to no good, Antichrist. He's going to be running the show on earth. He's he's going to be visibly. He's going to be the representative on earth running things for Satan, behind which is God the Father. But anyway, introduce Antichrist. The second seal removes the existence of peace, which results in war. Okay? The third seal, as is customary with war, results in famine. The fourth seal will bring the ultimate effect of war and famine death. So there's an orderly sequence to this, an ever-increasing intensity. Antichrist, war, famine, death. Now, John F. Wolvard brings verse 6 into perspective for us. This is very helpful. He writes, in order to determine the meaning of this vision, it must be understood that the silver coin designated as a penny in the King James Version is actually the Roman denarius, worth about 15 cents, probably worth a buck and a quarter now. In the wage scale of that time, it was common for a person to receive one denarius for an entire day's work, which is how the NIVs. Put it. I was being facetious because we're living in a time of inflation. Stay with me, Greg. For such a coin, one measure of wheat or three measures of barley could be purchased in the vision here. The explanation seems to be this. A measure of wheat is approximately what a laboring man would eat in one meal. Double that for me. If he used his penny to buy barley, 
a cheaper grain, he would have enough from, from an entire day's wages to buy three good meals of barley. He could eat all day on barley. He could eat only one meal on wheat. What does the verse say? A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, if he bought wheat, a more precious grain, he would be able to buy enough for only one meal. Walvard continues, There would be no money left to buy other things, such as oil or wine, which were considered essential in biblical times. To put it in ordinary language, the situation would be such that one would have to spend a day's wage Wages for a loaf of bread with no money left to buy anything else. The symbolism, therefore, indicates a time of famine when life will be reduced to the barest necessities. For famine is almost always the aftermath of war. The somber picture is emphasized by the color of the horse, black being the symbol of suffering. That's very helpful. That brings to life this verse. Jesus describes these early days of the tribulation, and it sounds pretty grim, but he points out that this is just the beginning. Please turn back to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, also verses 6 to 8. Still not. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. That is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, I, 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 my guess is that any discomfort a mother feels in the first month doesn't hold a candle to what they feel at the end of the ninth month. Is that right? I don't want to go through the tribulation, and I wouldn't want to go through that. <laughs> we have to admit that at this point, this all sounds disturbingly familiar. Jesus and even the Revelation narrative could be describing the world in which we live now. Some commentators conclude that. That Jesus' remarks, that Jesus's remarks are indeed limited to his and our time. That is, for believers during the dispensation of grace, the church age. We might even shrug our shoulders and respond with, what's the big deal? That's what we have now. Don't give me tribulation. This is... You're not describing anything new. We know that historically there have been periods in world history when it has been far worse than it is today. And if you don't agree with that, then you haven't read your history. So it's easy to see how some could deduce that we are indeed living in the tribulation now. This is the tribulation. That is the position of some. 
Some days might feel like that. Or that the world has already passed through it. It's already behind us. Inflation was so bad in Germany prior to World War II that it was said that people would need a wheelbarrow full of marks just to do the grocery shopping. There are people literally starving to death today. And indeed, wars of conquest are occurring. Even as they have occurred throughout man's history, it's the way of man. Death, even violent death, has never left us. As Jesus said, however, this moment in the tribulation is just the beginning. The suffering and havoc are just getting started. Musically, this is just the start of the seven-year crescendo. With its end, its, its crashing fortissimo climax at the moment Christ Jesus returns in judgment and stands astride the hills of Jerusalem. So put musically, a crescendo looks like this. Starts small, ends big. That's the seven-year tribulation. And we're just starting. Let me pause here. Any, any questions or comments before we start with the fourth seal? Yes, Greg. Do you think there's any significance to the types of creatures that are mentioned as far as the four living creatures, the appearance that they have, and the seals that they unlock? There could be. Some, some believe there is. I didn't go there. I haven't gone there. Uh, I figured we don't really need to address that. But uh, the, it could be. Yeah, they each, you know, uh, there's a lion head, there's a leopard, or a, um, a man. Um, but, but again, I don't think it's too wise to dwell too much on that because, again, you've got a prophet trying his best to describe something supernatural to fleshly human beings. And does that mean that they had a face that looked sort of like a lion's face would look? Or, and they had eyes all around. Were those really eyes, or was it something that looked like an eye? Boy, I'm hoping it's something else. Good, you, that talk about make your flesh crawl. Yeah. So the answer is: some people spend time doing that. I didn't spend time doing that. Yeah. Hi. Christina. Hi. Um, I'm trying to wrap my head around this being the tribulation. And I can't put scripture to memory right now, but wouldn't there be something that would need to happen before tribulation even began? Like the man of lawlessness or something like that? Yeah, we've already covered that. Oh, I was out for six weeks. I'm sorry. That'll do it. <laughs> but what, so the man of lawlessness has been revealed already? Is yes, that what you're ma'am. Saying? Yes. We talked about that at quite great length. I recommend the audios at my website. That'll bring you up to date. Yeah. 
that he's the Antichrist. The man of lawlessness is the is Antichrist. Yeah. He is revealed with the first seal. Okay, any I'm gonna push ahead. Fourth seal, death, verses seven to eight. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. With the breaking of this fourth seal, things are getting serious. Now we can no longer shrug our shoulders and assume that this all refers to the world in which we presently live. Never before in the history of man has death been granted authority over a fourth of the earth. I think we'd better define some terms before we proceed. The word in verse 8 Translated ashen or pale in our other versions. The word is chloros, as in chlorophyll. Does not mean a light gray or dappled color, but more of a pale, sick, yellowish green. It was the color of my face in the first couple of days on ship bound for Vietnam. Green around the gills. Until I acquired my sea legs. <laughs> do we have time for an anecdote? Yes. Sure we do. <laughs> in particularly rough seas. We were on a ship, a cruiser... The, the bridge was way up on the top of this tower and then on down the, the deck down below. So we were in particularly rough seas. Well, at every meal on a ship, they have a tray of soda crackers. Soda crackers absorb <laughs> that stuff that is working away on you. So it was the ship, the sea was so bad that I was out flat on my back on the, sh- on the deck stuffing crackers into my mouth right below the bridge so that the captain could look down at me. Good times. <laughs> no musicians on a ship. Okay, enough frivolity. It's the color of flesh when all the blood is drained out of it. Thus, the cadaverous color of death. It's not a pleasant color, the color of this horse. And the rider of this horse is, by name, death, Thanatos. Literally, in the Greek, the death. In the Revelation, death is personified, which, to my mind, reveals and emphasizes God's power over it. 
When you take a thing and personify it, you make it like flesh. And that, to me, emphasizes God's sovereign power over it. There will come a day at the great white throne of judgment when death itself, along with Hades, will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, turn please to Revelation chapter 20. Just go back to 20. Let's read verses 13 to 15. Renee. Reading from the NIV. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Dr. Walter Schmithals in Dictionary of New Testament Theology writes, in the New Testament, death is regarded not as a natural process. Now, I may need to, let me know if I need to read this twice, because you got to really chew on this a little bit. In the New Testament, death is regarded not as a natural process, but as an historical event, indicating clearly the sinful condition of man. In this historical sense, death is seen as a power which enslaves man in the course of this life. Hebrews 2, 14-15. Hence, it appears sometimes in a quasi-personal form. Also, Revelation 20, 14. Death... I think what he means by this, somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Man was not created by God initially with death. Man would not experience death originally as created. Sin brought death. I think that's what he means. It's not a natural process. It is natural now. Death dies. But his point is that in the New Testament, death is seen as a power which enslaves man in the course of this life. Let's look at that. Hebrews 2.14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Right now, as the Hebrew text reveals... Satan holds the power of death. But even before the great white throne judgment, Satan will precede death and Hades into the lake of fire, where they all will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Yeah, Greg. 
when I when I look at the natural world or the unbelieving world around us, I would say that death absolutely is their greatest enemy or their you know in the enslaver of them all because they can't get past that after they die and are in the ground there's nothing they think there's nothing left there's nothing else so they try to make the most of the life now because the great enemy is you know coming for them and for us all so i would agree that you know that through faith in the lord jesus christ that we do you know get past this enemy of death and it is defeated but without him death is is the winner of everything in their eyes because in the end you know there's two things that are guaranteed death and taxes we tend to see death as just the cessation of life that's we we read the word death okay that means i'm not breathing anymore but death in the new testament and especially in the eschaton is cut from a whole different yard of cloth. It is, it's personified, yes, but more than that, it's a power, it's a force. And that's why it's so significant that God says, okay, Christ returns as the great white throne of judgment, death and Hades, first Satan, who's in charge of death and Hades? Satan. Lake of Fire, which is called the second death. We will, believers will not experience the second death. Death is a big deal. It's more than just, okay, I'm not breathing anymore. So Hades, hell, death, all are personified and dropped into the Lake of Fire. Now, as to Hades, in all our versions but the King James Version, which has hell, with Hades, things, things really get murky. The word faithfully transliterated from the Greek, Hades, means something different in secular Greek to the Old Testament Septuagint, and different in the Septuagint to the New Testament. Generally, you can't really put your finger on this, but generally speaking, this word corresponds to the Old Testament Sheol, Hades Sheol, and is, quote, a temporary place or state, end quote. In the New Testament, in Christ, it takes on new meaning. Through the power of his resurrection, Christ has taken the power of death and the devil from them. He is now Lord of the dead and of the living. Romans 14.9 Hades cannot affect the church. Matthew 16.18-19 And any believer who dies is united with Christ, even if not yet in a glorified body. So we've already looked at that. We've looked at the resurrections. So there will be a moment in time, we call it the rapture, when the church, either still living or in the ground, will be lifted up to Christ. At that moment, everyone gets a glorified body. If we die before that, 
we don't have a gl- yet a glorified body. But we are with Christ. It's not clear from the text whether Hades follows along behind death separately or on the same horse. It's a small point. It's not really clear. The larger point is, this is the first instance in the seals and the tribulation of measured, incremental, deathly destruction. These two beings however they are personified, death and Hades, are granted authority, power over one-fourth of the earth. The word is ye, G-E in the Greek, ye. A general word referring to the inhabited world, and in this context apparently extends to the entire earth. Are they given this authority for the benefit of mankind? To encourage righteousness and justice for all? No. No, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. This describes an unprecedented level of death and destruction. The world population is presently around 8 billion people. If my math is correct, one quarter of that would be two billion. Two billion killed. That's right. That's right. But we don't know when this is going to happen, do we? The world could be 10 billion by then. Yeah, that's true. The church won't be there, but there will be Christians. The text describing the events of the fourth seal demonstrate the amorphous structure of the tribulation narrative, which I began this with. This text, verse 8, surely describes a level of death and destruction that fits what Jesus calls a great tribulation. Now, some people say, as I've mentioned before in an earlier session, you could look at all seven years as a great tribulation. Compared to today, it's a great tribulation. Or you could say only the last half is the great tribulation. The first half is just tribulation. I'm becoming to, I'm coming to the position that that's splitting an unnecessary hair that this is just a progressive process from beginning to end. So this verse 8 fits the description of a great tribulation, yet it's placed here in the early days of Daniel's 70th week. Just the fourth seal in the fourth group of signs, early on. Did I say that right? The fourth seal in the first set of signs. Right. So we have to ask, does this point to or foreshadow later events? Hence the little arrows there in your chart. 
those that take place during the second half of the tribulation? Or does it mean that death and Hades are just here beginning their work of culling one quarter of the world's population, a process that will be spread over the next seven years? Could be that too. It's impossible to say conclusively. So this teacher, for one, would rather not say. We can say this. Verse 8 truly describes a level of devastation heretofore unimaginable. Which means it fits perfectly into all prophetic passages regarding the eschaton. Whether Old Testament or New, it will be a time when those on earth will wish they weren't. Now let me close by reading Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. To the years of many generations, a fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them but a desolate wilderness behind them. And nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. That's tribulation. Now, we've got just a few minutes. Thoughts? Questions? I see a hand. Dave, I heard you a few minutes ago say that Christians will... Be here during the tribulation. I, I don't know if I was, was going to get called on that. I just yeah. knew it. Yeah, and I'd asked you that question a few weeks ago, and you said we'd get to it, and we may have it. I haven't gone back and listened to the audio, but care to elaborate? It's pretty obvious that think of it. Think of it this way. In the next moment, the rapture takes place. And 90% of the people in this room, gone. What is going to be the reaction of those left behind? Now we know from the record, we know from God's word, that evil runs rampant in the eschaton. But there will be some 
who look around and say, where is everybody? Uh Uh-oh. And to put it in a common phrase, they do business with God. And there's other reasons too. There's other, we know that during the tribulation, Israel as a nation, not 100% of every Jew, 100% of the Jews in the world, but Israel as a nation comes to Christ. They are saved, not because of the law, but because of Jesus Christ. They are Messianic Jews, they're Christians. So there are Christians, not just Jews, but there are Christians suffering through the tribulation. How many and when? Who knows? But yes, there are believers. There are witnesses. There are... Yes. Greg. Well, I was going to ask you this privately, but you've said something a couple of times that uh, I struggle with a little bit. And you, you say that with... With the um, rapture of the church, the the Holy Spirit leaves as well. But I know that some come to faith in the tribulation, as does the bulk of the the Jews, as you've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. We've oftentimes said that no one comes to faith except through the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So how do you... Uh, I have an answer. Okay, good. Just thought I'd give you a break there. As you might imagine, there are all kinds of positions on this. I subscribe to the position that after the rapture, the Holy Spirit, His ministry on earth, is more like it was in the Old Testament, where he comes and goes. He does things. He affects lives. He does the God's work here, but he comes and goes. He does, and I can't imagine any other, uh, I can't imagine that there would be a new system that if someone does it, come to Christ during the tribulation, they have the Holy Spirit in them. But I mean, it, it, that's kind of the way it is now, isn't it? The Holy Spirit does things on earth, but he doesn't indwell people that don't have Christ in their heart. And I think, so my position is that He's still working. He's still doing things here on earth, but it's not the same as it was during the church age. That is a different time. Does that track with you? For now. Anything else? Then it's time for the benediction. Our Father, we of fleshly minds can have a hard time understanding this portion of your word.
help us by the aforementioned Spirit. We need Him desperately right now to understand the eschaton. Help us. We believe that you want us to understand it. But we need your Spirit to translate the text for us, to write it in our language, in our hearts, so that we can understand it. We call upon him to do that, this most gracious spirit. We cannot do it on our own. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.